where I can say I'm a man. Oh yeah, it's done now. Sorry for you out there listening to the <laughs> podcast, uh, but now we are here. Uh, so, so, so tomorrow we're gonna talk about how can how is it that I can say that I'm a I'm a I'm a <laughs> I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm not just to say out there I'm not, uh, but how is it that? That that comment and that statement is just normal stuff. I mean, my uh, my grandfather, he would have. I mean, even though he wasn't a Christian, he would have like. I mean, just been laughing if I came to him and said, "I'm a I'm a woman trapped in a man's body." So how is it that we've in 50 years is a place where that is just uh, totally normal to say? So that's what we're going to do tomorrow. We're going to look at the big picture tomorrow of how did we end up here in this totally crazy world. And, and what should we do about that? And today we are uh, focusing in on uh, what I call uh, performance culture. Uh, but just uh, a little bit about me before uh, I jump into to what we're going to talk about today. Um, my name is uh, Thomas, as I said, I'm married to Inge, and uh, we have two uh, girls, uh, Selma and Elinor, that is 10 and, and 7 uh, years old, and then we... Some years ago, a few years ago back, we moved to Aalborg uh, to plant Aalborg Vineyard. Uh, I had been planted not a vineyard church in uh, in Copenhagen, and uh, so this is my first uh, vineyard church that I go to, uh, which is kind of interesting uh, to plant a church without having been part of a church uh, vineyard church before. Uh, but we've been up there, and I'll just say to you all, I mean, I cannot recommend planting a church during a pandemic. I mean, that's just a bad idea. Uh, so if you ever are going to plant a church, then just uh, look out for, I mean, pandemics. <laughs> and uh, then uh, then uh, escape if, yeah. Uh, besides uh, doing the church planting, then I'm also uh, working with an organization called Youth for Christ. And um, then I'm also spending a lot of time in our local football club uh, where I'm the coach of uh, an amazing, talented group of under 11-year-old girls. And um, that, uh, that has been, let me just say, an interesting lesson and learning, steep learning curve of how to handle 15 girls uh, and try to learn them how to play football. Uh, it's almost like discipleship, um, and uh, and I just have, I mean, I just want to share one quick story from that. Um, a month ago, we were to a tournament uh, in Silkeborg, and uh, let me just say it this way: uh, even though they are very talented, are very fun, um, they have also lost a lot of games. Uh, and then the captain of the team, she came up to me before we were starting the tournament, and said, "Hey." Thomas, I know that you are uh, a pastor, uh, and uh, why is it that God is not on our side when we play? Uh, I mean, if we had God's help, I mean, then we would probably win. Uh, and then I said, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, it's a little bit of cheating if, if we prayed that we would win. Uh, but, I mean, we could pray before the game to ask God to help us win. And uh, she said, yeah, I think that's a good, good idea. We need that. Uh, and uh, so before the first game in this tournament, 
Uh, we uh, we gathered up and I said it uh, could be. I mean, uh, Sophie and I we have talked about it and uh, and we think it would be a good idea to pray before the game. And if there's anything else we should pray for, we could also do that. And then some of the girls shared some stuff they would, they would like prayer for. And um, then we prayed, um, and uh, and a miracle happened. They actually won the first game. Uh, so uh, so at all the games now we are praying before. Uh, we are not winning all the time, but uh, but we are praying and. Uh, and if I kind of forget it, they will remind me that we need to pray. Uh, so uh, that is kind of fun. Um, and I did, I mean, I was say, I did write the parents right away uh, and said, it's not me that is forcing prayer on your kids. Uh, it was actually uh, some of the, the girls that suggested it. And uh, the parents have kind of taken it okay. Uh, so, uh, and I've not been fired yet from the coaching job, so... So that must, must mean that they... And when we are talking about football, this is actually where I would like to start our talk today. Uh, because I want to take you back to a place. Um, how many of you was born in 1996? 1996, yeah. Um, what? What? That you were born in 96? No, no, you, I mean, were you alive in 1996? Oh. Oh, okay, 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 <laughs> all right. Mm. Okay, just, just uh, try to close your eyes, and um, now we are doing a little visual journey. It's really hot, like we have the weather we have now, but you are in London and uh, you are at a football stadium in South London. And, um, and it's Germany against uh, the England in the semi-finals of the Euro Cup. And, and now there is the penalty competition. And um, I, mean, this is, I mean, this is the chance for England to beat Germany. And um, the media have been totally hyped about it, and they have just been thinking, this, this is the place, this is the game. And now you're looking down at the players, and um, there is a guy there who is uh, called, um, I mean, he, he actually, this guy, he, um, he's going up to the penalty kick, and if he scores on this goal, England will go through. And this guy, who is going up to the penalty <coughs> spot, he just knows that this is his time. He knows that now is the time for him to shine. Now is the time for him to actually do the thing that he has trained for his whole life. Actually, he was one of the best athletes in his... Uh, I mean, when he was young, he thought he was going to be a professional athlete. But then he got a sickness in his leg. And, um, and actually, the doctors told him that he would not be able to compete in athletics. But when he was in his sickbed... He decided that he wanted to become a professional football player instead. And uh, he went, came back from the sickbed. He came into a football team. And his youth coach said, you have to toughen up. And if you don't toughen up, you don't have what it takes. So show me that you have it. And while he's walking up to the penalty area, he's actually thinking about his youth coach. And he's thinking, this is 
the time to toughen up. Now I will show the whole world that I have what it takes. And, um, and he goes up to the penalty. He has actually been the one doing penalties for his uh, soccer te- uh, his, his football team in the Premier League. And he has not missed a, pick, a, 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 kick, a penalty kick in the whole season. So he knows that he has it. And he's thinking, now I'm going to show them that I've toughened up. And he goes, puts the ball down, and uh, he takes six steps back, and right there, fear comes upon him. And he thinks, if I don't make this goal, I mean, this will define my whole career, this will define who I am, and if I miss this kick, I mean, I don't know who I will be, I will not be able to live anymore. So with a lot of fear, you watch him go to the penalty. And then he runs to kick the ball. And I have to say, it is the most miserable kick ever. And the German goalkeeper, Oliver Kahn, he takes the ball easily. And our man on the penalty spot, Gareth Southgate, he falls to his knees and starts crying. And now you can open your eyes. And, um, and Gareth Southgate, by accident, uh, 22 years later, became the coach of the English football team. And since Gareth, he actually uh, missed that penalty kick, the English football team has never won a, a penalty uh, what you, shootout. And, um, and, and what happens um, when, when Gareth Southgate, he took over the English national team, was that he actually hired a sports psychologist to work with the players. And um, her name is uh, Pippa Grinch, Grinch, Pippa Grinch. And, uh, and Pippa, working with the UK national football team, she found out that what really was going on with the football players was that they basically felt that their next performance on the football field, their next kick, their next goal would actually define who they were as not just as football players, but actually as a human being. And, um, and she actually says in her book, Fear Less, that one of the most, one of the kind of main characteristics of our time is that all of us have the fear that we, that we don't have what it takes to make the next kick. And uh, she's actually saying that her most important work with the football players was to talk to them, convince them that the next kick is not defining who you are as a person. And then what happened in the year 90, no, 2018 was that after Pippa had worked with the English football team, they were actually in a shootout uh, in 2018. And for the first time in 22 years, the, no, yeah, 22 years, 
the English English team actually managed to win a shootout in a, a, in a in a Euro Cup or in a World Cup. I mean, they then fired her after that, and may, that, that that's maybe because they lost last year. But in 2018, we are allowed to celebrate that actually that she worked so hard with the players that that when they went up to, and she says, and also some Gareth Southgate, he would say, and he said this in an article after the World Cup, that one of the biggest differences in the players' attitude and mentality when they went to the penalty shootout was that they actually knew that they had earned their right to take that kick. They actually, they already knew that they were good enough. There was a reason why they were playing on the national team. It was actually because they were good football players. And they're also working with them knowing that football is not, and their performance on the pitch is not what defines them as human beings. So, so this story basically is just to illustrate what kind of culture it is that we are part of. That for a lot of us, in not only in sports, but in our whole culture, is what we could call a performance-based culture, where our identity and our value uh, often is based on um, our latest performance. <coughs> and um, there is a Danish, um, yeah. And I mean, I have made some very beautiful slides, but I totally forgot my, you know, connection to this one. So just imagine the slides. Uh, but there's a Danish uh, guy, uh, a Danish uh, um, researcher called Anders Petersen, who wrote a book called The Performance Society. And, um, and he was basically interested in why is it in a culture like the Western culture that, um, that so many young people, and he was very much uh, interested in young people, why is it so many uh, young people get diagnosed with stress and anxiety and depression and uh, eating disorders, when you look at the statistics among young people over the last 30 years, it seems like that young people are just not thriving at all. Of course, there's a group of them that is doing well, but it just seems like um, there is an increase in the numbers of uh, young people that suffer from, from these kind of illnesses. And, uh, and he was basically very interested in finding out why is it that in a society with... Uh, a lot of resources, with a lot of uh, therapeutic help, with a lot of uh, a strong economy, like most of you that are young, or youngish, uh, that is here in, in this room, uh, you have basically been living in a culture and in a time of Western culture where there have been, I mean, it has just been going up, up and up. I know there was a little bump in 2008, but except from that, I mean, it has just been going up, 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 and up, so so he was just thinking about why is it that in a culture where it seems like everything is going upwards, there's an increase in in uh, young people with uh, with mental health issues. And um, and one of the things that he found out was that that what he says is that we are living in a culture and, and in a society in a system basically that is his main point, and that we are living in a system from kindergarten, from a, a nursery, that it's all performance-based, that 
the way that we are talking about things, the way that we set up things is like learning goals, um, and we have to have good grades so we can get into universities and all that kind of stuff. And he says that in our in educational system and in our all of our systems in our culture, it is performance-driven uh, and performance-based. And he's basically saying, you are your performance. You are not a human being anymore. You are human performance. That is who you are. That your identity is so tied up to your, uh, to your performance that that is who you become. And, uh, and he says that when performance is the basis of who you are, then what, uh, what you really need is approval. And what gets you approval is changing all the time. So what gives you approval today will be different from tomorrow. So, so that actually means that that we all the time that that creates a, 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 you could say an uncertainty about how can I get the approval that I long for, because basically we are all, I think most <coughs> uh, psychologists uh, would agree with this um, that that what we're all longing for is basically to be seen and to be heard um, because we need an approval of who we are. That is what we are longing for. And, um, and if we are living in a culture and in a society where it, our approval is based on our performance and what gets us that approval is changing all the time, it creates an uncertainty within us. And there's a fragile thing to it. And, um, and, and one of the things that have created this, you could say, is that we, on a broad scale, have gone from what I call, what I call, from, a ba- from Baker to Bieber culture. Uh, I think that was a good one. But, um, <laughs> but basically, it was because back in the days, uh, normally it would be like that you were born in, to a, in a family or in a social group or in, in, a special, in, in a specific place in society. And um, that mean, meant that if your father was a baker, you would probably also become a baker, maybe. I mean, you, you would take that craft that your family had, and you would kind of belong to a, like a certain um, social class. And in some way, that would give you a role, that would give you a place of belonging, and it would actually give you a place of direction for your life because you were actually born in a specific place, in a specific group, and there would be a lot of things that were already given to you. And I know that you are all uh, very clever people, so I'll not you know, go a lot into this, but actually what happens with Justin Bieber, Paris Hilton, and all, all of those kind of uh, personalities was that that something changed uh, after World War, World War II, and it was a movement that basically just is, you could say, peaking right now. And, and what happened was that after we got more economic, you could say, stability, and uh, we actually also, a lot of people got access to education and stuff like that, suddenly... Um, you were able to move socially um, in society. And that meant that now 
when you were born to parents of bakers, you didn't necessarily have to become a baker. You could actually start to choose yourself who you wanted to be, what kind of education, what kind of social class you would belong to. And, uh, and, and together with that, and we're going to talk about more about that tomorrow, um, you could say it became more and more up to yourself who you wanted to be. And basically, it's up to you who you want to be, and your choice is, is defining who you are. And, um, and that has created some kind of paradox for our society. And the paradox is that we have had a lot of economic, you could say, progress, and uh, we have a lot of economic um, stability, but at the same time, what Anas Peterson found out in his research was that one of the main reasons that these young people started to get mental health issues was that there was a lack of purpose and meaning. So, so you can easily kind of, you know, you, you, I mean, it's when it's, he basically says that if you always have to perform better, do better, and, and reaching out for the better things, you actually start to lose yourself, you start to lose your sense of meaning and purpose. And uh, because you always have to be faster, be better, um, and all that. And, um, and because it's so much tied to your identity, you start to lose the sense of who you are. Uh, and there's an American uh, sociologist called Cote, he says, um, the problem in our culture today is that we can't find long-term goals or meaning uh, because we are living in an instant society. And I think that's a pretty good quote that because we're living in a society where it's always have to go fast and instant, it's actually a problem and a challenge for us to have long-term goals and long-term meaning. And, um, and then you can think about, so what does that look like? And um, in my own uh, personal life, uh, I have a friend um, that I got when I moved uh, to Aalborg. And uh, if you look at his life, he basically has everything. Uh, he is living, you could say, the performance-driven life. He has a good-looking wife. He has two uh, children that is, uh, what do you call that? They are, they are doing well. Uh, he has a house in the better part of uh, Aalborg. I mean, that doesn't cost, cost that much, but still. Um, he, he has a great house. He has a summer house. He has a motorcycle. Uh, he ha- he's ha- having a top job in a, in a bank, and he has his own investing uh, company, uh, I mean, on, on the other hand. So he's doing, I mean, from the outside, he's doing very well. And um, during uh, the pandemic, uh, I started to go for some walks with him, and we talked about life, and, uh, and, and one of the things that he was saying was that now when I'm here in this uh, pandemic and I'm kind of isolated, I, first of all, he says, it's, it seems like I'm missing something. And one of the things he said that I think I'm missing is that I'm, I'm missing living for a greater purpose. I mean, basically, I have everything now. What is left now? And, uh, and I think that that is very characteristic of our culture, 
that we have lost the sense of a greater purpose. And then he says, the other thing that, that, is, that I'm kind of worried about is that I'm afraid if anyone else, I mean, likes me. And, uh, and I'm actually afraid if people will turn away from me. So all the time when I enter into a room, I hope that people will like me. And I was just like, I mean, hey, you're a good-looking man, uh, and you have everything. On, I mean, everything is all right in your life. Why is that so troubling? Why, why is it that you're so uncertain uh, on that? And then he basically said, I mean, because even though I have all these great things that are listed up for him, he said that on the inside, I'm afraid that if I don't have these things, that no one will like me, that I'm not good enough. And that is basically the problem in a performance-driven culture, is that on the inside of all the great performances, because you have been um, valued by your performances, on the inside there is a great uncertainty about, have I done all right? And, uh, and I think that most of us, we can probably recognize that and resonate with that, that, that even though we are trying to perform well, even though we are trying to do our best, and maybe we are succeeding in the things that we are doing, there's still this little inner voice when we look to the side and see other people performing better. We are actually thinking, do I have what it takes? And there will always be people performing better than you. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but, but, but there will be. And, and I have shared this a couple of times before, but but even as a, you know, as a pastor and a supposed to be mature Christian as me, um, I will say, coming to a summer camp like this, I have the totally same mechanisms, uh, you know, working inside of me, and I compare myself, and that is what happens in a performance culture, is that you compare yourself with other people. And then I can look at other churches here and other pastors and other great stories of how God is breaking through and the kingdom is coming and healing is taking place and uh, Shagabadai all over the place. And, you know, it's just, I mean, it can, I mean, I can so easily think that even though I'm trying to do my best and I'm tr- like Mike Pivolacci said yesterday, Obedience is God's love language. And even though I'm trying to be obedient, I still have this little uncertainty, or sometimes great uncertainty within me that is asking the question, I mean, do I have what it takes? Am I good enough? Because I'm also living in a culture that is telling me it is your performance that is defining your value and who you are. And the problem and the challenge for us is that we are also taking that uh, mentality to our you could say image of God and oftentimes our relationship to God also becomes a matter of do I do well enough do I pray enough do I live rightly I mean we take our you could basically say our need for approval from other people and from our 
uh, you could say, social settings to our relationship with God. And, and basically, we are trying to perform well enough so God actually likes us as well. And, um, and I think that one of the biggest challenges for us in a performance-driven culture where we all live is to actually get a different narrative. Because the narrative that we have all been living by is that you are only as good as your latest performance. Uh, but in a Christian, you could say, narrative, in a Christian life, there is a different narrative that we have to learn to live by. And um, and I was just... Uh, last night I was sitting and talking to Mr. Dolbert that is sitting down in the, in the couch. And, and we were talking about these things, and I'm very surprised that he's here because... I'm basically just repeating myself from last night. Uh, uh, but, but there is something, I mean, within us, because we are in this culture, that is making us fragile. And, uh, and what, what our culture has learned and ta- uh, taught us is that that fragile Fragility or that vulnerability that we have with inside us, we should just try to hide it away. And we basically have learned to be ashamed about, you know, this uncertainty that we carry. And the thing is that if you, if you are ashamed, I mean, the only way to take, to restore our uncertainty is to actually face it and invite God and other people into where we are fragile and we are vulnerable. And I actually heard a podcast this morning, and I heard a quote for the first time. I thought, okay, this is really, really good. Uh, Maybe I should just put the podcast on and then go to the lake. Uh, But one of the things that she said in this podcast was that I mean, what you don't repair, you repeat. Yeah, that's a tweet worthy. Uh, what, what, you, what you don't repair, you repeat. And I really believe that is true, that if you don't restore what is broken within you, if you don't repair or heal, you know, the things that you are longing, I mean, those, that brokenness, where you are longing for approval because you are afraid that you are not loved, because you are afraid you don't have what it takes. If, if you don't allow God to restore that, or can also be through counseling and all kind of other stuff, but if those things that is broken with inside you, that create, you could say, unhealthy patterns within your life, if you don't restore, repair, heal that, you will just keep on repeating those bad uh, patterns or then those unhealthy patterns. So there is a challenge for us in a performance cu- culture where we are set up to burnout, where we are set up to anxiety, where we are set up to actually believing that we don't have what it takes because other people are performing better than us. Um, there is actually a challenge for us to start to to deal with the uncertainty, to deal with the brokenness that we've experienced, 
to actually find out how we can do that. And I will say this, I'm all in for, you know, I've, I've been using a lot of time as a psychologist, and I totally think we should do that. But there's also some areas of my soul that I have experienced that God is actually healing. And I think that the mix of good <laughs> therapy and God's spirit and just, you know, I mean, that is a great way of, of healing. Is, is my experience, at least for my life. Um, so, so working with all this, I got, I will not say a revelation, but almost a revelation. One of the most <coughs> important texts in my life, because I've been struggling with the longing for approval and the longing for being good enough, basically my whole life. Um, and it all started on a football pitch, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sorry. I mean, if you go to a seminar with, my, with me, there will always be some references to football or cycling. Um, but on a football pitch, for the first time, or at least, I don't know if it was the first time in my life, but I really, I mean, I, re- I remember I was playing on the first, the, the first team at our, at our, at, at, in our club, and then my parents, which were not at all football people, um, they thought it was more important that I went to a summer camp uh, in our church than actually play a very important football tournament in the summer holiday. And um, I was really, let me just say this way, I was angry for my mom and dad because of what, why go on a church camp when you can play football? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Um, and um, then when I came back from uh, the summer break, uh, the coach uh, called me into a, a little conversation. And then he said to me, Thomas, it's, um, I mean, you didn't really show up for the summer tournament that we were going to play. And uh, for me, that shows that you don't want this enough. So I have to put you down on the second team. And I was, uh, I think I was uh, 12 years old. And I was, I mean, it was one of those days where I was just crying and crying, crying and crying. And, um, and basically one of the thoughts that came up with me that day was that, okay, even though I have put all my efforts into it, because I have been not chosen before at the football, but I've been really practicing in the garden, everywhere. And, I mean, I've really put a lot of into it. And then I was thinking, even though I put all this effort into it, and even though I'm performing well when I'm on the pitch, it's apparently not enough. And, and basically, the thought that created within my soul was that it will never be enough. And, um, and that was kind of the, the theme, or has been the theme of a lot of my life, that it's probably, not, it's probably never enough. So, so, so one of the most important texts for my life, and also I think in a performance culture, is of course uh, the text of Jesus' baptism. Uh, because... In the baptism of Jesus, um, 
I mean, it's before Jesus has done anything. It's before he has played well on the football pitch. It's before he has, I mean, done any miracle. He's not even been to Canaan yet and uh, done the or Cana, do, did the wedding thing that Mike talked about yesterday. Um, and and then he's being baptized, and um, and then this thing, there's this beautiful thing from heaven, uh, where God is saying, "This is my um, beloved son, and in him I'm well pleased." And um, and I've heard that a lot, and it, has, and it has been very important for me that that you know that God loves us before we perform, and that. Even though Jesus hasn't done anything yet, he was still loved, and that that has been very important for me. Uh, and um, and to actually remind myself that even though that I don't perform well, and even though that there's better pastors and better church planters than me, Jesus still uh, God still loves me, and I belong to His family. Um, but then I wrote a a paper last year uh, on this on this verse. Uh, and um, because yeah, I'm doing some education, and uh, then I started to look into the text again, and suddenly I realized that this thing about this is my beloved son, that is a I, I did know that, but it, it's a quote from one of David's psalms where it's kind of being confirmed that you know that Jesus is the king. This is my beloved son. Um, so, so God is basically... No, that was a wrong quotation there. <laughs> God is basically <laughs> quoting... Uh, he's qu- quoting David in saying that, yes, Jesus is the king. He is my son. This is my son. I totally confirm his identity, that he belongs to me, and, and, um, and, and I love him, and... And that is, I mean, that is who he is. He is loved. That is his, and he is the king because I am the king of kings, uh, or I am the king of the whole world, earth, and he's my son, so he will be the king of the earth. So, so he's totally, you know, confirming the identity of Jesus in that first sentence. But then, which I didn't know, that, uh, that the other part, in whom I'm well pleased, is actually quoting Isaiah, uh, and the part from Isaiah about uh, being the, the sovereign servant. So, so God is actually in in this baptism. He's both saying, "You are my beloved child," and at the same time, He's saying, "And I'm sending you out as a sovereign servant." So He's not only confirming the identity of who He is. He's also saying, and I have a thing for you. There's a purpose. There's a meaning for your life. There's something bigger that you have to do, and that is to be a suffering servant that is bringing healing to the world. And for me, that was a big revelation, (laughs) that God is always both confirming our identity and giving us all the approval that that we need in the performance culture. And at the same time, He's also giving us a purpose and a meaning of our life that we're here to be suffering servants. I know that is, doesn't sound, sound that nice, but to actually be servants that is bringing healing to people 
and to broken systems in our world. And I think that if we are going to, you know, navigate in a performance culture, we need to live out of that, that we are already loved, we are already taking in, that Jesus is, uh, and God is confirming our, our identity that we are loved by him. And then at the same time, he's also handing us a purpose that is bigger than ourselves, a meaning that is bigger than ourselves, and that is to be a servant that is, that is restoring and healing. And um, I only heard the last part of uh, Anna's um, talk this morning, and she, she was talking about child and servant. And I think both is right, but it always has to start with that we are ch- a child loved by God. And because we are a child loved by God, then we get to be his servant. It's nothing that we have to do, but we get to be his servant. And there's a big difference. It's because we know who we are, then we get to serve each other because we are already loved and we already have what it takes. Mm. That was... uh, (laughs) (laughs) 